You have people that can tell a certain story, get an idea out there first, and they attract all of the venture capital money. They attract all of the attention. They attract all of the media, and it just fuels itself. There's、mm-hmm. a mimetic process that that kicks off, and I think you know the, the same is true in science as well. To give you an example, I recently read that there's kind of a、um, a real controversy right now in Alzheimer's research because a couple of decades ago there was some well-funded studies that got a lot of press and attention that linked the cause of Alzheimer's to a particular protein in the brain, and、right, it sort of directs、uh, what I call hot capital, right, to this one idea, and they can overlook all of the other things that are going on, all of the other research that's happening, and for for years, sometimes even for decades, right, all the attention is focused on this one thing. I'm Brandon Vaidyanathan, and this is Beauty at Work, a podcast about how beauty shapes our world and the work that we do. In this season, we're looking at beauty in science. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Luke Burgess. Luke began his career on Wall Street in investment banking and private equity. And went on to found multiple companies in technology, consumer products, and wellness. He is entrepreneur in residence and director of programs at the Sioka Center for Principled Entrepreneurship at the Catholic University of America, where he's also a professor of business. He graduated from New York University's Stern School of Business with a degree in finance and accounting, and later studied philosophy and theology at a pontifical university in Rome. Luke is the co-author of the book Unrepeatable. Cultivating the Unique Calling of Every Person with Dr. Joshua Miller, and the author of the best-selling book *Wanting: The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life*, which I highly recommend. Really excellent book.、Uh, and this book is inspired by the ideas of the social theorist Rene Girard on the mimetic or imitative nature of human desire. Luke, such a pleasure having you with us. Thank you for joining us. Brandon, good to be with you. Let's start talking about your background. You pursued finance, and then you became an entrepreneur, and then you studied philosophy and theology. What motivated you to pursue these paths? What desires were you pursuing, perhaps? I think I've had different motivations and desires at different stages of my life, and it's interesting how in different influences on us can affect our desires and what we are attracted to at different time. So, as a child, I grew up with a grandmother and a mother who were both artists.、Mm-hmm. And one of my earliest childhood memories is walking into my grandmother's art studio in Traverse City, Michigan, and seeing all kinds of interesting artifacts and objects. She was a bronze sculptor, and I was just fascinated at the sheer wonder of what she did, and my mother as well. And as I sort of got older and got went through school. I began to lose a sense of that wonder, and my decision making. Was focused, hyper focused on what was going to be useful to me, right?、Mm-hmm. So, you know, stability, earning a good income, getting the best job right out of college, and I, I did that. I pursued that route, worked on Wall Street for a short period of time, and eventually moved to California and co-founded a series of companies. And all of those companies, most of them were tech related,、um, where I was completely removed from interactions, like personal interactions with other people. One of my companies was an e-commerce、uh, mm-hmm. website, so I was behind a computer for most of the day. My other company was a food distribution business, where I was putting snacks in vending machines、mm-hmm. and distributing them around the country. And I realized at one point that 
I had sort of lost some of that excitement, that childlike wonder and excitement and ability to be affected by the world around me, right? I wasn't as curious as I was when I was a child. And that really bothered me, right? There was like a level of affectivity that was gone. And I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And eventually, through sort of a, a, a series of events that unfolded in my life, I was regrounded. And I sort of had to just get away and, and come back to the things that were most important to me. And I rekindled some of that childlike wonder that I had. And I realized that it was really important to me as an entrepreneur to, you know, separate myself from the, the constant grind, to step back and try to integrate the things that are really important to me in my life, right? So that's around the time when I decided I do have this real thirst and hunger for art, right? Um, for beauty that I was sort of lacking in my life at that time. I lived literally in the middle of the desert in Nevada, which the desert can be a very, very beautiful place, but I, I was in, in Las Vegas, which yeah. <laughs> depending on, right. on your perspective, it may not be the most beautiful, bright, yeah. bright, shiny lights. And I just, I really crave that. So something was rekindled inside of me. It's almost like a desire that had always been there that I'd somehow forgotten. And this sort of led me back on a path to a kind of a more integrated way of looking at my work. I, I felt fragmented. And then I was sort of able to become whole again through this long process of searching. The desire for beauty, the desire for wonder, it seems were part of that, of that search. And then you end up writing a book about desire, right? And this, as your book Wanting, is about mimetic desire. What is mimetic desire and why does it matter? So mimetic desire is, is a phrase that comes from a French social theorist named René Girard. So he was introduced to me around the time that I had this existential crisis I'm describing, where you know, my work had, had lost some meaning. I wasn't sure you know, why I was doing it. I wasn't, I'd lost some of that energy and that wonder. And a good mentor of mine introduced me to this, these ideas of Gerard. And Gerard's entire theory has to do with why humans want the things that they want. And he explored you know, classical thinkers like Plato and Aristotle, who recognized that there's a strong role of imitation in human life. Human beings imitate. It's how we learn. It's how we learn languages. Mm -hmm. It's how we learn to be part of a certain culture. And imitation is this tremendously powerful force in human life. René Girard's kind of contribution to this perennial exploration of the role of imitation in human life is that humans' powers of imitation go deeper than external forms of imitation, mm -hmm. right? Which he called imitating sort of the imitation of representation, right? Things that we can see, right? On the external surface. We even imitate the desires of other people, right? We, we read below the surface level and imitate what other people want. So we're social creatures. And in mimetic desire, mimetic is just a word for imitation, right? Because yeah. it comes from the Greek word meaning to imitate. The reason that Girard didn't call this kind of desire imitative desire is because he, he wanted to distinguish it from the kind of imitation that we're happy to talk about and admit, right? Like we mm -hmm. talk about imitating role models when we're children. Mm -hmm. This is very common. Mimetic desire, he said, it usually happens unconsciously, right? We're usually imitating other people who, who are models of desire for us in some way, who are mediating desires to us. In an unconscious way, because as adults, we don't always like to admit that we're affected in this, in this way by other people. We like to think of ourselves as very independent and autonomous. And yeah. the heart of Gerard's theory is that our desire by its very nature is social. We imitate the desires of other people for better and for worse, mm -hmm. right? This happens in, in tremendously positive ways. 
when we're inspired by somebody else's, you know, beautiful uh, desire, right? Maybe they have some kind of quality. Um, maybe they're a, a tremendous father or mother, and and that you know they those are those are great desires to imitate, right? But other times we can be drawn into to pay attention to bright, shiny objects, right? That other people model to us, whether it's a certain kind of a lifestyle. And that's, that's, I realized that's what was affecting me my mm. whole life. I sort of looked around me and found models to imitate without necessarily knowing that I was doing that, which somehow caused me to kind of lose, lose myself in, in a way and forget that original sense of wonder, that original kind of uh, openness to, you know, to the beauty around me. As I began to be hype on this hyper track focus of, you know, career, financial stability, totems of prestige, right? Which in my world were, you know, having certain kinds of watches and things like that, right? as beautiful as they may be. It was kind of a search for status, right? And there was, and status always, I guess, seems like it might be beautiful uh, before you, before you have it, but then you realize that the search is kind of empty. You're reminding me of the work of Will Storr. He's got this new book on status. He argues that that everything we do is a pursuit of status and we can't escape it. And even if it's the pursuit of, say, spiritual status, you know, wanting to develop some sort of interior perfection, that's still a kind of status chasing in some sense. I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on whether whether we can escape the pursuit of status and particularly can we escape mimetic desire? I think it depends on, you know, we should probably kind of try to define status then, right? Mm-hmm. Is status a state of being, right? Is that kind of what we're seeking? In that sense, I think that no. In, in that sense, there is no escaping mm-hmm. a search for status, right? We're, we're constantly seeking a certain state of being. But status can be, uh, we can seek more superficial forms of status and more grounded forms of status, mm. right? Um, and I think that's where the difference lies. And I view status as kind of a, spect- a qualitative spectrum. Another, you know, this is not equivalent to status, but, you know, the word prestige is a very interesting one. Often we seek professional prestige. We seek, um, you know, our, our colleagues, right, to esteem yeah. us or to think that our work is important. And prestige is can be a slippery slope because it literally comes from the Latin word for illusion, right? There's a there's a great movie that's named The Prestige about two rivalrous magicians. So prestige being this sort of relatively abstract concept, the desire for prestige itself can lead us to, you know, realize how empty it was because when, when is enough enough, right? When will we ever have enough prestige? It seems to be the kind of thing that leads naturally to the desire for more of it. And there's no sort of, it's not concretized in the kind of way that we would ever know that we have the kind that we're looking for. And I think there's some relation to status there. Yeah. I want to apply these ideas uh, about mimetic desire, prestige, rivalry, and so on to the world of science and, and technology. So, and then there are different worlds, there are different industries, right? So the world of science and academic science different from the tech industry. But one of the factors that seems to characterize both of them is competition and also rivalry, right? So in the world of science, one of the things that seems to matter a lot is getting credit for a discovery. And, and it's a really scarce reward. In fact, there's this priority rule where the person who reports a discovery first wins all the spoils, regardless of how many other people were involved actually in making that discovery possible. And some people say this has led to a lot of the secrecy and, and sort of, you know, hyper competition and so on that, that actually is bad for science, has led to the replication crisis and so forth. And the Nobel Prize is another kind of example of sort of a really scarce reward where only three scientific fields can win a Nobel Prize. And even in one of those fields, you, only three people could, could actually jointly hold that prize, regardless of whether there are 100 people on the team that made that discovery possible, right? So 
So this is a question, I suppose, about, you know, I'd love to, to hear your assessment of the world of science and, and this sort of competition. Is this really a source of unhealthy rivalry? Is this, uh, is this bad for, for, for science and, and, and for academia more generally, do you think? Yeah, the broader discussion of competition, I think, is an interesting one. I come from the business world, right, the startup world. The word competition, competere, it just comes from Latin. That just means to seek together right? To seek something together. So in business, I suppose that's profit, mm-hmm. right? You have multiple, you know, businesses that are together seeking profit, right? So part of it depends on whether or not you believe it's a zero-sum game or not, right? So if you're, if you're seeking that profit together, if you believe that there's a, a fixed amount of it, then somebody has to win and somebody has to lose, yeah. right? If you actually believe that you can create more of it, right? That you can create new value, right? Which creates more profit, then I suppose it can be a constructive thing, right? It can, it can push people to innovate. And innovation is important. And, and there are many stories throughout history of, you know, competition leading to innovation, right? Because if you don't innovate, you die, you don't survive. So innovation um, is more than just this kind of, you know, we kind of wax poetic about innovation, but businesses have to innovate. They have no choice. Yeah. They don't innovate, they don't survive. I guess the same could be true in, in academia with scientists, right? There's good competition and there's bad competition, I suppose. And I can think of competition, you know, pushing discovery, pushing innovation forward through some kind of healthy, you know, competitive rivalry in some sense. But then other times it can become just silly, right? Mm -hmm. When, you know, the competition can be such that you forget what it was that you were interested in in the first place. And it becomes more important to just, you know, publish in a certain number of journals or something like that, right? Where you sort of get distracted, right? Your attention gets diverted to the wrong place because, you know, the competition is for some of these smaller stake things, right? And where, where does that end? I suppose it's sometimes it's good not to have competition, though. You know, I think of a situation where I'm, you know, working on a book, for instance. And if my publisher said, well, Luke, there's three other people that are writing books about the same topic, and whoever finishes the writing first will get to be the one to publish it, I wouldn't write a very good book, right? Because I'd be constantly worried about what everybody else is doing. Whereas if I had a grant and I had two years to work on this, right? And I could just focus on it completely. It's going to get more of my time and attention and thoughtfulness where I'm not constantly looking over my shoulder, you know, worried about winning this race. So in that sense, I think that for scientific discovery, I think it is important that people have a certain amount of space to be able to focus on on the work and on seeking the truth, right? And be given the, the time and the resources to do that. Now, in regards to the winner-take-all kind of example that you used, right? Like the first person to kind mm-hmm. of declare something that happens in business all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, we winner take all markets, right? Mark Zuckerberg, you know, got it with a social network. I don't think that's good. That seems like it can lead to people being motivated for the wrong reasons and not mm-hmm. necessarily, I think people, even the way that ideas and work is framed can have more to do with a kind of framing things in order to get certain kinds of recognition or credit rather than focusing on the work itself. You're listening to Beauty at Work. What do you think are, perhaps more broadly, the conditions for mimetic rivalry versus sort of more healthy competition? Like, what are sort of structurally those differences? If you were sort of, if you had the ability to, say, set the stakes whether, say, you were the National Science Foundation, you wanted to incentivize funding or, you know, some other way to control sort of structures of competition. Is there anything you would do to sort of create healthy versus sort of this mimetic kind of competition? 
Yeah, you know, an interesting distinction that Gerard makes when it comes to the different kinds of mimetic desires, he says that there are two major kinds of models of desire in the world. There's the kind of model of desire that is external to us, that we don't necessarily have contact with, that we can't really become rivals to. An example of this would be um, a doctoral student and like some famous you know, researcher who already has their PhD, mm-hmm. they're sort of not competing for the same things, right? They're in, mm-hmm. they're in different worlds, at least until, until the student, right? Like yeah. becomes sort of on, on a level where he can compete with the master. The other kind of, of mimetic desire or the other kind of model is an internal model of desire. And this is somebody who's kind of inside of our world, right? Who's very, very close to us. And that kind of, of rivalry can be Gerard says that that kind of rivalry can be dangerous because, you know, if we have two colleagues, for instance, at the same university who are sort of, you know, competing for the same recognition or something like that, that can actually lead them to, to, not, to not help one another, right? Mm-hmm. To view all the resources as scarce. In my undergrad school, we, we had, um, you know, something, it was, a, it was a bell curve and we all knew that there was only a certain number of people in the class that could get A's. And it actually led us to, you know, to not share our work, to not even help our fellow students, right? And it seemed to me to be a very unhealthy form of rivalry. So I guess creating the conditions in which people have trust, right? To share their work, to help one another, to work towards the common good does require that they're, they're not in a position where they're competing for the same scarce resources in some way. And I, I, I don't have the answers for exactly how to do that if I was, you know, on a, on a committee with a prize or something like that. But I do think more thought needs to be given to this kind of feature of human nature, mm-hmm. right? It's not enough to just sort of dangle recognition and money out there. I think creating structures and conditions that will foster uh, cooperation and trust between the people that are competing actually is important, especially in that domain. Yeah, because it seems like, you know, the work we're doing is looking at the role of beauty in science. And for a lot of scientists, they'll say encountering the beauty of not just nature or, or scientific phenomena, but the beauty of understanding. You know, when things come together, you gain an insight into how reality works. That's really what makes everything worthwhile. That's why you go into science. That's why you put up with long hours in the lab. And that's why you put up with even bullying and, and sort of, you know, sort of the harassment and some of the, the, the negative aspects of science and then chasing after grants and so forth. But the sense of competition, the idea that I have to get my idea out there, otherwise we don't really get funding and I, you know, lose my students and I lose my postdocs and so on. And that, that really sort of seems to undercut that ability to, to experience the wonder, right? I mean, which is, which is kind of, I think, a little bit analogous to your experience, right? The initial wonder that draws you to do something in the world and to create something of value is, is undercut by those uh, mechanisms that, in theory, are supposed to to keep the engine moving, but it doesn't often happen that way. Is the world of technology similar? I mean, is Silicon Valley, I mean, that's a world that you're a bit more familiar with. I mean, how different is that from the world of academic science or academia? I don't know if it's very much, if it's very different at all, right? Because mm-hmm. we're talking about, when it comes to mimetic desire, we're talking about kind of a feature of human nature, right? At least in, for Gerard's claim is that this is something that's part of human nature and it's, you know, humans in Silicon Valley and humans in, in science and in academia. So in Silicon Valley, you certainly have phenomenons where, you know, you have, uh, there's a first mover advantage, mm-hmm. right? You have people that can tell a certain story, get an idea out there first, and they attract all of the venture capital money. They attract all of the attention. They attract all of the media and it just fuels itself. There's mm-hmm. a mimetic process that, that kicks off. And I think, you know, the, the same is true in science as well. 
To give you an example, I recently read that there's kind of a, um, a real controversy right now in Alzheimer's research because a couple of decades ago, there was some well-funded studies that got a lot of press and attention that linked the cause of Alzheimer's to a particular protein in the brain. And right, it sort of directs uh, what I call hot capital, right? To this one idea. And they can overlook all of the other things that are going on, all of the other research that's happening. And for for years, sometimes even for decades, right, all the attention is focused on this one thing, which can cause funders and, and researchers to miss other things, right? Because they're so focused on this one thing. So there is something to that. I mean, that, that seems to me to be dangerous, or at least can cause us to miss opportunity, right? Because we, we think that, you know, the understanding, the truth is to be, must be found in this one area because that's where everybody else is looking. And that could perhaps simply be for mimetic reasons. And that's why it's important to at least be aware that this mimesis works in pretty much in any domain that we're in, in human life. No, I think that sounds a little bit like one of the debates that's pretty live in, in uh, physics, which is around the idea that beautiful mathematics for a long time has been seen as, as a guide to truth. And especially this past century, the first half of the century, a lot of predictions that were made just sort of betting on, on what scientists, what physicists found to be beautiful turned out to be true. And then since the 60s, it sort of stopped working. And then the argument is, is from the critics is something similar, that, that we're directing our attention to certain aesthetic criteria that worked for a while, that was really hot for a while, but now maybe it's outlived its utility. Mm. And so I'm curious about what is the link then between that kind of beauty? Because really the folks who are pursuing this route of investigation are saying, look, the, the math is beautiful, it must be true. And they're led by a, a conviction about beauty. Perhaps in, in some ways, you know, not too different from, from some of these venture capitalists who are pursuing some sort of aesthetic judgment. And I'm curious to know whether, like, the kind of beauty people find, yeah, how is beauty, I suppose, related to desire and to mimetic desire? Yeah, I think we imitate models that we find attractive in some way. That we're, you know, we wouldn't imitate a model subconsciously or consciously if we didn't in some way believe that they possess some quality of being that we would like, right? So we're, we're somehow attracted to them in some way. Now, I think there's a difference between attraction and beauty. So when I look at my own vocational journey, and I, I described a little bit of it in the, in, at the beginning of this conversation, I sometimes wonder if we look back at our lives and why we were attracted to certain things or people that we were attracted to, and then we, we look at it 10, 15 years later, and it, that attraction might seem silly. Like, oh, why, why did I think that that was beautiful? Mm -hmm. Or why was I so attracted to that? I think we can begin to diagnose some qualitative differences, right? And some of these things could be kind of a, a naive adolescent kind of infatuation-like attraction, and other things could be rooted in something that's real, right? Like mm -hmm. some objective beauty in, in, in something. I've wondered often whether um, the things that we find beautiful at different points in our life, if those are some kind of signpost to kind of what... Uh, where we're going to find the ult our ultimate satisfaction mm. and fulfillment in terms of a professional career calling or vocation. For instance, um, when I was a student, I had classmates that found solving math problems to be incredibly beautiful. One of my friends quite literally cried who solved a math problem, and he went on to get an engineering degree and finds it absolutely beautiful in a way that I, that I do not. And does that say something different about kind of the, the different paths that we've taken in life, right? Uh, I find different things beautiful, right? So I think there's a link between kind of understanding ourselves and th the various things and reasons why 
we might find some things more beautiful than others. But I think understanding that these qualitative differences and why we're attracted to things is really, really important. Is there kind of, um, in, in my book, I differentiate between what I call thin desires, which are desires or things that we're attracted to that kind of come and go, right? There's nothing enduring about mm. them. There's no continuity. I might be attracted to this thing today and then next week it doesn't matter to me anymore, as opposed to a thick desire, which seems to be rooted in something that has solidity, continuity, it's enduring. There seems to be something objectively real about that desire. And there's where I think there's some some deep connection to beauty. Yeah, and it seems like beauty is one of these things that we can make a sort of second order reflection on, right? We can ask ourselves, it's just one thing to say, I find this beautiful, but then should I? And we can sort of assess why it is that that we find the things beautiful that we do and and whether we ought to to pivot. And that's in some way one of the issues in this conversation around science is whether the the science we find beautiful today is is a reliable guide to truth. Is you know, should it be something that necessarily will always be reliable. And I want to ask, uh, you've, you've written this, this article, uh, this essay for Wired, in which you talk about the difference between the logics of, of Athens and Jerusalem and Silicon Valley, right? So the relation between reason and faith and technology. Could you say a little bit about what your argument is in that piece and how science might fit into that relationship between reason and, and technology in particular? Yeah, so this conceptual framework that I call the three-city problem is just me trying to give language, and I'm a very visual uh, thinker. So I, I was imagining that the world is, is somewhat clustered into, into these three cities where people are doing work largely unconnected from, from the other cities. So one of these cities is Athens, which I is sort of shorthand for just the, the world of kind of pure reason, right? The other is the world of Jerusalem, which would be the religious world, right? The world of faith. The other would be the world of Silicon Valley, which is the world of technology, but more so utility. It's the world where utility is the primary value. And I've lived in all three of these cities at various times in my life, right, as part of my journey. And the feeling of fragmentation that I felt was me wanting to have all three of these cities sort of coexist in the world that I was in and and inside of myself, right? Because I am a religious being. I do look up at the sky and and wonder about things. I'm a rational creature, most of the time at least. And I do believe in creating things that are useful, right? I like to innovate. And Silicon Valley activates a very important part of me, right? This creative Mm. side that I have. But these things need need not be separated. And I guess if I was to situate, I mean, I think beauty is part of all three of these cities. In my experience, I tend to find the beauty more, most in Jerusalem, right? Like when I walk inside of a beautiful church or something like that. But that shouldn't be the only place that we talk about beauty, right? It shouldn't be relegated to to any one of these three places. I mean, beauty is just kind of this perennial human need. And finding ways to to not think that the only place that I can seek beauty is is kind of in that one domain was an important realization for me, right? Having this kind of integrity between the three cities. A really important part of beauty is is integrity and and, and coherence, mm-hmm. right? It's like one of the things that at least the scholastic philosophers said were really important qualities of beauty, claritas, integritas, and coherence. So I think it's kind of a, you know, in the modern world, we fragmented a bit. And, you know, you have people in Silicon Valley that many of them are so sort of focused on creating useful things that they're not necessarily thinking about whether these things are beautiful. 
And if we go too far in, in that direction, you know, what will the world look like 50 years from now? If everything's, you know, fall of the, the money that's being funneled towards simply creating utility or useful things, right? It seems like beauty has an important role to play there. Yeah. How do you differentiate that kind of beauty from the sort of shiny things that we chase after? Because there is a kind of beauty and utility, I suppose, right? People would yeah. say that this is the value of something is that it can be useful for a lot of people or can make a lot of money or, you know, so particularly for somebody working in Silicon Valley, like if someone is drawn to say, be really creative and produce something that, you know, an app that solves some, some pressing problems, how would you advise them, I suppose, to keep their eyes on this sort of deeper form of beauty? And what would be the indicators of that? How would they assess whether perhaps they have drifted into sort of a more mimetic you know, realm of, of chasing after a different kind of superficial form of beauty? Like what would be some of the red flags, indicators, signposts that they could pay attention to? Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, I think that there is absolutely relationship between utility and beauty. I mean, there is something, you know, beautiful about, you know, creating efficiencies and, you know, and, and actually the more utility we have, the more you could argue, the more time is freed up for us to gaze at things that we think are beautiful, right? And waste time in a museum, right? Uh -huh. Because I was able to order a book that arrived at my house in, you know, 12 hours or something like that. And I didn't have I'll to read spend, some of the books on the spend shelf. Time right? go, yeah, there's <laughs> many books on the shelf right now. So you, know, you could argue that the vast utility, the things that have been created have actually allowed me to sit down and be able to spend time, you know, reading or investing mm -hmm. myself in, in exploring beauty. There are different kinds of beauty. And, you know, I think there's aesthetic beauty for sure. There's also moral beauty, Right. And when I think back at some of the, the experiences in my life, the encounters that I've had that I would describe as the most beautiful, almost all of them involve encounters with other people, right? Witnessing some beautiful act of love, right? Like a, seeing a beautiful soul, seeing, you know, seeing somebody work in a beautiful way and who's a master at their craft. I find it incredibly beautiful um, when somebody's invested in, in being able to do some, some simple thing with excellence provide for their family, all of these things, there's a certain quality of moral beauty about that. And that sort of transcends my thinking is beautiful for merely aesthetic reasons. And there's something deeply human about this. And I think that, you know, that this deeply human side of beauty, we need that in, in technology, right? The minute that technology is divorced from the human person, the minute that business loses sight of the human person, which is at the center of all business. What are we doing this for, right? And science as well, I would imagine. And science as well, right? Then I think that's an indicator when we're creating things that are not allowing people to experience a full range of their humanity, a full range of human emotions, right? Because they're, I have my head buried in my phone for so many hours a day that I'm missing the created reality around me. I'm missing nature. I'm missing the sunset that I'm, I'm driving right by in my Uber and I'm, you know, I'm busy texting somebody or scrolling Twitter or something like that. You know, these are clear indications that, I mean, part of that is personal responsibility involved in this too. But as creators, as people that are thinking about innovating, right, discovering truths, how do these truths ultimately relate to human life? What will they mean? And especially if we're, when we're creating new things and scientists have a big role to play in this, you know, what does it mean for humanity, right? As we're creating rockets that can go to Mars, we always have to go back to the question of what is why and what will that do to kind of the human 
you know, the human spirit, right, mm-hmm. and, and our society in general. Yeah, there are some who try to push back and, and try to decenter us and, and sort of make this sort of Copernican move and say that, you know, part of the problem is the centering of humanity and we need to decenter and, and, you know, look where this sort of really the speck, you know, on this tiny planet, which is a speck in the middle of this, you know, or not even the middle of this sort of remote corner of this, of this galaxy, et cetera. And, and there is a, a tendency, I suppose, in science today to sort of decenter the human. And, and is that, uh, and there's something attractive for scientists who sort of see this decentering as being more true to the nature of reality, that, that we really are not at the center of the universe, et cetera. And I wonder whether that sort of vision, you know, is, is there something beautiful there? Is there something ugly there? How do you, how do you assess that? And in terms of trying to, to make sense of what the purpose of science might be, or what value it, it has in this world, and what kind, you know, the kind of pursuit that it is, 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 is this sort of, because so, there's, there's that particular tendency to decenter, but then there's also the transhumanist tendency that, that wants to sort of overcome and, and, and it's go beyond our humanity. And so those are two directions, it seems, that science is moving in at the same time. I wonder what your thoughts might be, you know, particularly in the world of technology where people want to capitalize on these, on these directions. Yeah, I mean, I would say I don't think it's, we can't escape a mimesis, right? Uh, René Girard is clear. We, we can't escape a mimesis. We can just learn to operate in, as mimetic creatures in different ways. So we can't fully escape that. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that I, I don't think we can completely forget ourselves and do away with ourselves, right? Like we're, we, no matter how hard we try, we are observing reality as from your chair and from my chair. Yeah. And we can never completely sort of, you know, um, we're not neutral observers, right? We're observing it from a, from a place in the world. So this, you know, this makes me think of the word transcendence, mm. right? And there is a, I do believe the search for truth and beauty has to do with uh, transcendence, right? Transcending ourselves in a, in a healthy, positive way, right? I think of when I see something beautiful. I just did shortly before we got together, actually. I had an encounter with a person on the street, and it drew me out of myself mm-hmm. in, a, in a positive way. I was, all I could think about was, you know, all the things I had to do today. I was getting ready, for, you know, to have our conversation. This encounter, which I, I was beautiful in many ways, drew me out of myself in this, in this wonderful way. And I think, you know, encounters with beauty, encounters with truth are this, you know, human desire to kind of continually go beyond while also but that that doesn't mean that transcendence does not mean completely discarding ourselves right i mean that that would be i think a not a healthy way of thinking about it and i think that's the transhumanist movement i think sort of tends towards that there's an element of continuity I, i think about our humanity that's good you know we're part of this ecosystem so you know i think that transcendence is what desire is ultimately about right? It's the, it's the search for transcendence. And how beautiful of a thing is it that we are social creatures that have mimetic desire? Because I can have an, I can meet somebody, enter into their world in this wonderful way, share experiences with them, and we're united in this shared desire for, you know, some common good, for instance. That's something that's, that's uniquely human, mm-hmm. and I think is good and noble. And science does wonderful things to to unite us, right, and to show us what's possible. So one of the things that Gerard talks about and you've written about in your book is, is the ways in which mimetic desire and rivalry then, then leads to scapegoating and, and violence. And, and, and particularly during times of uncertainty, it seems like we really want to look for scapegoats. We're still emerging out of this pandemic, and it looks like uncertainty has been pretty rife. And, and some people argue that science has been sort of scapegoated in this process. 
and we're still, I think, divided in terms of whether we can trust vaccines or not, whether we can trust scientists or not. I'm curious to know your thoughts on what can bring us out of this sort of world of mimesis and can beauty in any way save the world, as Dostoevsky might, might suggest. This tendency of humans to imitate one another and blame is kind of at the heart of this idea of scapegoating, right, which is a fundamental part of mimetic theory that we often, you know, quickly mimetically unite against somebody that can bear the blame for our problems or our uncertainties. And you know, I think that's certainly, we've, we've seen a lot of that, especially over the last few years. And that happens in a kind of closed system, right, where people are turned inward on themselves. And there's the lack of any kind of transcendent good that could pull them out of that mechanism, right? So the scapegoat mechanism in Gerard's view is inevitable in any kind of closed system where there's, you know, what he calls a mimetic crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Where there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of blame that, that sort of spreads by contagion within uh, a community, any group, any culture. And the way that that is eventually resolved is by finding the scapegoat. But that happens in a, a closed system. And he would call that a, uh, the scapegoat creates a sense of false transcendence, he mm -hmm. would say. Right? It's a false transcendence. that it, it actually produces a feeling of catharsis. We could, may even call it a false uh, beauty or something like that, right? Like a beauty that, uh, aha, like we've, we've now you know, pinpointed the problem, right? And we have understanding about yeah. what the problem is, right? But a false understanding, right? And if there is a genuine transcendent good, that it, it has the effect of pulling us outside of ourselves, right? And we, we're not necessarily turned inward. Um, you know, I think of, for instance, the like the famous example of Christmas in World War One, right? Mm. Where the soldiers in the trenches well, just had, yeah. the, there was somehow this beautiful day, this idea, this thing that was bigger than than them facing off, mm. right? And they put down their arms. and they, So I do think that beauty is extremely important and it can act as that, that way to, to turn shoulder to shoulder and to look together at something that is truly like a real, a real form of transcendence mm. and not the kind of false kind that we get from, from the scapegoat mechanism. Would you have any advice on how our listeners, our viewers could uh, cultivate attentiveness to that kind of beauty in their lives? Oh, wow. I, you know, I think gaining some kind of distance from the noise is, is important. So for me, silence is beautiful. And one of the ways, the reasons that silence is beautiful is that it, it just helps me become so much more attentive to the world around me. You know, I, I have to unplug. I try to do it once a year for four or five days. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful and I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to, to, to do that. But I think there are little ways throughout the day, right, to develop routines where we can sort of step back from the mimetic system dynamic that we're in and sort of look around and refocus. And that's been the single most important sort of, you know, tool for me to use for people that are in science, for scientists. Uh, I think it's really important to tell stories about the role that beauty has to play in your work, right? And mm -hmm. in, in their work to avoid kind of my journey, which was pursuing things for utilitarian reasons, right? STEM majors uh, are seeing soaring popularity right now. Oftentimes, I'll talk to students and ask why they want to go into engineering or something like that. And it's because, well, it's the easiest to get a job and, you know, to earn money. I don't know if they've heard as many stories as they should about the sort of integral, all of the other reasons, right? The stories of beauty, the stories of what it feels like to achieve that understanding, right? 
I think this would sort of round out the motivation. I think it's really important to talk more about the role of beauty in, in work and in, specifically in science. Look, thanks so much for your time. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beauty at Work. Please be sure to check out the show notes for more resources from our guest. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. If you like the show, please be sure to share this episode with your friends. And also, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a five-star review. It really helps us out. Music for this show was provided by Venkat Subramaniam, and the podcast was edited by Dave Visaya from Podcast Engineers. This season of Beauty at Work is sponsored by Templeton Religion Trust as part of a grant on the aesthetic dimensions of science. To learn more about this project, please visit wellbeinginscience.com. Also, for the broader project on Beauty at Work, please visit beautyatwork.net.